as we kick off this series this week, in this Advent series, I've actually asked three of our friends right here within Ethos to kick this thing off. And so we'll introduce them in just a, in just a moment. But when we think of this word Advent, or a lot of us, when we hear the word Advent, we immediately think of like a fun calendar that our kids use to kind of count down the days until Christmas. And my kids love Advent calendars, and I love them too, because usually there's like toys and treats in there that I oftentimes eat as well. But, but the truth is, is that, that that whole idea as well, it actually comes from like the brilliant marketing minds of Cadbury chocolates. Get this, in 1958, they invented the very first ever Advent calendar. And thanks to them, that's usually what we think of when we hear this word Advent. But that word actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means arrival. Advent is the coming or the arrival of Jesus, the presence of God Himself, God with us. And so for hundreds of years, followers of Jesus from a wide variety of church traditions, actually for thousands of years, just over a thousand years now, all over the world, people have set aside these four weeks leading up to Christmas as a meaningful season of celebration and anticipation. That's what we're up to here. As we lean into Christmas, we want to as well celebrate the anticipated arrival of Jesus and what that really means for all of us individually. And so today as you walked in, if you came in in person, uh, you would have received a physical copy of our Advent devotional that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks together. And then if you're online and you're part of our online church, you can actually download those and, and receive those. Those are available digitally as well. Just go to our website, click on the resources tab and then click the devotionals button and you'll see all the information there. But the whole idea of celebrating Advent, if that's new to you, you're in good hands. Because this devotional, and really the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, is meant to protect all of us from the unintentional consequence of just kind of the modern pace of life. It's so fast especially around Christmas time. And so our prayer is that through our weekly gatherings, like Sunday mornings, small groups, and then this, this devotional, that we're going to see and know Jesus more during this Advent season than we ever have during any Christmas season previously. A.W. Tozer says that when, when you think about God, or actually he says it more like this, that what comes into your minds when you think about God, it's the most important thing about you. And I, I think that's... I think that's true. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, he has this interesting dialogue with his 12 disciples, these 12 young men who committed their lives to following him. It says that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked these, these 12 guys, his disciples, he said, hey guys, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He referred to himself as the Son of Man. It was a way for him to connect relationally with all of humanity. So he said, hey guys, who, who do people say that I am? They replied, well, some people say John the Baptist, others Elijah, to others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Yeah, okay, but what about you? Jesus kind of flips the script and he says, yeah, who do you say that I am? Did you know that your answer to that question, it determines the degree to which you will be, become, and do what Jesus did. A whole, a whole vision here at Ethos is to be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he, do what he did. And there's no other question that has more consequence on our life, both in the here and now, like our present day, and in the eternal, in the, in the world of, of forever. In fact, one, one time, this is kind of interesting, that Napoleon was actually asked for his verdict. Like, who is Jesus to, 
to Napoleon. He said, well, I know men. Like, I've been around a lot of men. And Jesus Christ is far more than a man. And no doubt, Peter, when he answered that question, hey, Peter, who, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter said, well, you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. No doubt. Peter, who is a fairly uneducated fisherman, could not have given a theological account or a philosophical expression of what he really meant when he said that Jesus was the Son of the living God. Like, Peter didn't know. Like, I don't even think he fully understood the ramifications of what he had just said. But the one thing of which Peter was quite certain was that there is no human description that was adequate to describe Jesus. Peter had seen and experienced too much. And this passage teaches that our discovery of Jesus Christ has to be, hear me ethos, it's got to be a personal discovery. That Jesus' question is for you, it's for me, it's for, it's for everybody individually. So you, what do you think of Jesus? Like, who is Jesus to you? If Jesus were here right now, like on this platform, He would, he would ask you that question. He, he'd say, yeah, but who, who am I to you? Because later on in Jesus' life, when He's about to be crucified, Pilate, who was kind of in charge of His crucifixion to a certain degree, asked, asked Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus' response was, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Because Jesus was trying to get Pilate to say, hey, it's our own knowledge of Jesus, not the knowledge which has been passed down to a second hand that we need to become more aware of. And so we may not know every verdict ever passed on Jesus. We may not know every Christology that human minds had ever thought of about Jesus. But Christianity never consists of knowing more about Jesus. It's always about actually knowing Him. That's the beautiful truth and the reality of Christmas. God with us, knowing Him personally with us. And so so Jesus today is not just asking Peter. He's not just asking His early disciples. He's asking us, like, who am I to you? And so as we kick off this series, I've asked three friends just to kind of briefly share from their experience, like from their own personal lives. Who is Jesus to them? And then at the end of our time this morning, I'm gonna give you, we wanna give you the opportunity to lean into this Advent season with that same opportunity to reflect and give space and time to answer that same question. Like, who is Jesus to you? And so Andrea and Brian and Weston are gonna take it from here. I'll see y'all next week. So like Jordan said, well, first of all, good morning, Ethos Church. So excited to be with you guys this morning. So like Jordan said, we're just going to hop right into it. So we're answering the question, who is Jesus to me? And so when I'm answering that question, when he posed that to me to think about, the answer to that for me is Jesus is my companion. And I'm excited to share about this for just a few moments this morning with you, because I'm excited to speak to a very specific group of individuals in here, those who may not always feel heard, uh, may not always get to hear what they need to hear in a setting that we're in this morning while we're in church. So I say he's my companion because the reality of it is I'm 33 years old, I'm single, I have never had a boyfriend, I've never been in a relationship. And at the in my 30s, that's a spot in my life where I'm getting frustrated by it. I can be just annoyed and bothered by that. Over the last few months, though, I've really been thinking about what does this season of singleness look like? How do I come to grips with the thought of, am I going to be single? Is this a long-term thing? Will this be the trajectory and the path of my life? 
how do I become okay with it? How do I not despise it? How do I live in it, thrive in it, make the best of it? And I'm not saying that I don't believe that God's not going to bring someone along in due season, in due time for me. But what I'm saying is while I'm in this season of singleness, how do I live it out the best way possible? How do I thrive in it? How do I navigate it? How do I not despise it? The word companion it means one of a pair of things intended to complement and match each other. So I'm learning in this season how to understand the beauty of the companion that is Jesus and how he complements and matches me in this time of singleness in my life. So there's three things I'm going to share with you, and I'm just calling them the three illusions of singleness. And I think these are things that try to steal our focus from truly living out being in companion with Jesus. The first illusion says being single is just too hard. Well, here's the reality. It's hard whether I realize it or not because I'm the one making it hard. Here's the thing. Jesus is the example of the perfect man, right? He is the most complete and perfect human to have ever walked the face of this earth. So if Jesus, while he was on this earth, is single, him being single was not coincidental. Jesus being single shows us things that, like marriage, romantic fulfillment, uh, those interactions, those experiences, that none of those things are essential or intrinsic to being a full and complete and thriving human being. And the very moment we think and say otherwise is the very moment that we imply that Jesus was not perfect. That's the very moment. And the thing is, Jesus did not call me, and he is not calling me to a standard that he himself was not willing to embrace. And if he was able to embrace it, to live in it, to thrive in it, to live out his calling in it, then I certainly have no excuse. And I'm not saying that being single is easy. What I'm saying is that we can't position ourselves in a mindset that it's too hard. This time of singleness for me is what I've been given. It's not focusing on what I don't have, but rather I'm in a less complex position in life. So I get to pour my whole self into the kingdom. I get to pour my whole self into walking in companionship with Jesus. The second illusion says being single means no family. And that's a lie that I've fed myself for way too long. So I'm talking to myself with this one. In Mark 10, 28, this scripture right before this verse uh, is the story of the rich young man. And he so desperately wanted to follow after Jesus. But Jesus told him what he needed to give up. And he wasn't willing to give those things up. So he walked away from being in companionship with Jesus. And the, vo the verse picks up and it says, Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Jesus assumes that we're going to follow him because that's discipleship. That's companionship. And he's clear about the cost of what that companionship is, but he knows that companionship with him will be well worth it to us because he knows that he will be the one to replace the family, the relationships, the things that we so desire. He's going to give that to us times a hundred in due time in the right season. And the last illusion is the one that says being single is easy. 
And I'm gonna get real with you guys for a minute because I keep, I hear all the time, Andrea, you're single, you're fine, you have all this time, you have no responsibility. No, I'm gonna be real. Being single, it sucks. It's not easy. It's in the little things and in the big things. It's always checking the box on the form that says single. It's going on vacation by myself and having to pay for room that's priced out for two people. It's walking into, it's for real, y'all, I did it, I did it this year. <laughs> it's walking into a social gathering by yourself. It's coming home to an empty house after a long day and not being able to share about your day with someone. It's going to eight weddings in one summer, real talk that happened to me, and having to be happy and celebrate those people time and time and time again. It's watching students that you've mentored and discipled get married before you. It's when people have speculated, oh, your turn so soon, to the pain you feel when they stop speculating because so much time has passed. I'm gonna validate those things for you. Yes, being single is not easy, but we have grace. There is grace in this season. I'm graced as I seek out and live out companionship. And let me tell you why. In Psalm 139, verses one through six, it says, oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to understand. You guys, he searches me. He knows me. He loves me. He sees more into me than I know of myself and that is companionship that is what a companion is that is what a companion does the truth is the fears I fear in singleness and hear this is no less true for married people as well because here's the reality not all marriages survive spouses pass on divorce happens getting married is no guarantee of eternal companionship because well life life happens life is hard we live in a fallen world right the only guarantee of our eternal companionship is found in Jesus. Psalm 23, it says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are close to me. Life can get gritty and tough and dark, but it's in those places that he's my companion. So in closing, I say this, being content and happy as a person in a time of singleness is not about trying to make singleness into something that will gratify and please you. Rather, it is to find contentment and companionship in Christ as a single person. There's nothing ultimate that I'm missing out on by being unmarried. Being married, yes, it's a good gift, it's a great gift, it is a gift from God, but it's not an essential gift. What is essential and necessary for this life is letting Jesus be my companion. It's letting Jesus be your companion. You know, there seems to be this proverbial pendulum in the Big C Church today that swings in a very clear direction to whether being married or single is more worthwhile. And I'm gonna leave you with this challenge, with this thought. Rather than having to continually prove and convince others and yourself that singleness isn't as bad as it tends to be viewed, let's celebrate how those in a season of singleness can be a strong catalyst in propelling the church forward. Let's shift the mindset to that of companionship with Jesus being the ultimate goal because that is what Jesus is to me. Jesus is my companion. Wow, thank you. Man. Hey, good morning, I'm Brian. I wanna take a minute 
uh, to start by first realizing I can't see. <laughs> there we go. I want to take a moment to start and introduce you to uh, two of my favorite human beings. I think there's going to be a picture up, but this is a picture from uh, my home office. This is uh, a picture of Robert and Sophie Kloss. These are my maternal grandparents. Um, they're awesome. Um, they lived their entire lives in Peoria, Illinois. My grandfather, uh, Robert, rose all the way to shop foreman at Caterpillar, at a Caterpillar plant, worked there um, since he dropped out of high school. Um, and he and my grandmother lived there in Peoria, and they raised three kids, including my mom, the middle child. And I have so many vivid memories of my grandparents, especially my grandfather. You maybe can tell from just the picture, he's a, he's a colorful kind of guy. He, he, smoke, he smoked these big cigars, and he wore this giant fedora hat, and he spoke big and loud, and he laughed big and loud, and he was a terrible dancer. <laughs> terrible dancer, but he danced a lot. He danced all the time, especially when one of his grandkids uh, asked him to. He was larger than life. He was also a man of really big faith. His faith in Jesus informed his entire life. He lived with Jesus in mind. He thought, uh, do I want to go here or say this or do this or be this if today's the day that I see Jesus? It informed his entire life. And he was a man of great joy. I think he just had to dance as bad as he was. Picture Elaine on Seinfeld. Are you old enough for that? Picture that with a cigar and a fedora. There's my grandfather. But in uh, 1982, when I was 15, uh, his life took a really sad, devastating turn. Really sad and devastating for all of us, but especially for him. In uh, 1982, my grandma, his wife of 40 plus years, had a sudden stroke and she died when she was 63 years old. Just like that, she was gone. And he uh, did his best to press on, but he was deeply, deeply sad. His heart was broken and I don't think he recovered. I don't remember him ever dancing again. Now, two and a half years later, in March of 1995, just a few months before he died, he wrote me a letter with some of his reflections on life, some advice for me. I, I don't want to bore you with the entire thing, and I don't think I could read it without tears anyway, but I wanted to share with you just one little paragraph. He wrote this. I've only recently realized that I've wasted time in bitterness and loneliness over the loss of your dear grandmother when I could have used what God gave me to make the world a better place, at least for someone. Now that letter and similar letters he wrote to my brother and to my cousins, 
They all go on to implore us, to beg us, to invest every single minute of our lives in something that matters forever. Something that won't just go away. My grandfather pleaded with us that no matter who you are, he wanted us to appreciate the fact that we are trading our lives for something. No matter who we are, we are trading our lives for something. You and I are taking the bundle of our life, that, that bundle of time and energy and money and talent and giftedness and desires and longings. We're taking that bundle of life and we are trading it all for something. And my grandfather's advice to me was to make sure that I'm trading my one precious God-given life for something that matters, for something that one day won't just slip through my fingers and be gone. Now here's a surprise. Surprise is that my grandfather's tearful advice from Peoria, Illinois in 1985 is remarkably similar to advice that Jesus gave his followers in first century Palestine. In Matthew 13, 44 to 46, we jump into the middle of this long group of stories that Jesus is telling to his disciples about what it means to um, fully step into following him, what it means to step into the kingdom of God. And he said this, beginning in verse 44, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it to buy that one pearl. Two guys that are just going along their daily business, and they run into treasure. And they go home, and in their joy, they sell everything else so they can go back and buy that one thing. Jesus makes two points here, and I think they're, uh, they're the two points my grandfather would have made because he was following Jesus and he knew this story. But Jesus says first that his followers, listen, his followers should pursue treasure. Followers of Jesus should pursue treasure. These two stories straight from the mouth of Jesus, they're passionate pleas to you and to me to pursue treasure with everything we've got, to go for it, to risk for it, to seek it out, to give everything I have to get it. But Jesus doesn't stop right there. He makes one more critical point, one caveat, one a critically crucial distinction. He says this. He says, not everything is treasure. Most things that glitter or shine, despite the song, they're not gold. They don't qualify as the real thing. Jesus says to invest yourself in real treasure. Not the fake stuff, not the counterfeit, 
Not the treasure that looks good for a minute and evaporates. Not, not that stuff, but he implores us to pursue the real thing. Jesus says that the key to investing my life rather than wasting it is to recognize real treasure and distinguish it from all of the things that distract and compete for my attention. All the distractions and the counterfeits that our world offers us every single day. Jesus says it comes down an invested life in the real thing comes down to distinguishing the real thing from the counterfeit, to knowing what is true and what is just a distraction. These two stories about treasure hidden in a field, about this extraordinarily valuable pearl, they make it clear that real treasure, the real thing, is most often overlooked and undervalued by the vast majority of people around us. The real thing is overlooked and undervalued by the crowd. If the majority is going after it, if culture as a whole has embraced it, it's probably not the real thing. These stories, they, they're not about real treasure showing up in the town square or on TV and standing up and shouting, hey everybody, I'm here, I'm real treasure, this is me, here I am, come and get it. No, real treasure, the real thing, it's buried in a field, it's hidden on a merchant's table, it's passed by most often by most people. You don't find real treasure by following the crowd. So what do these two guys do? Picture yourself. Find, find treasure, they find a pearl, they go home and sell everything. Sell their house, they sell their clothes. Everything in the Greek should actually be translated everything. It's, it's neat, it worked out. That's what that word means. They sold everything. And some of us might read that and feel sorry for them a little bit. They might think those poor guys, they had to give up all that they had. Kind of feel sorry for them. But there are three key words that Jesus uses back in verse 44. I don't know if we can put those verses back up for a minute. But in verse 44, Jesus uses these three little words. In his joy, he went off and sold everything and bought that field in his joy. Jesus doesn't tell this story so we'll feel sorry for these guys. He tells it so that we'll envy them, so that we'll want to be like them, so that they'll follow, so that we'll follow their patterns. You'll see these guys as sacrifice and risk. While big, we'll see that they pale in comparison to everything that they gained. God created you and me to be treasure hunters, to unashamedly and unapologetically seek out and pursue treasure. Jesus says, go for it. But the catch is he calls us to pursue the real thing, treasure that lasts, not the counterfeit stuff. So now, after all that is a little introduction, we get back to the question we were asked, who is, who is Jesus to me? 
after following him since I was 16, Jesus himself is the real treasure. Jesus himself is the one that our world so often overlooks and undervalues. He's the one that's worth everything I have. He's the one that is infinitely, everlastingly more valuable than anything else that competes for my energy and my attention and my love and my loyalty and fill in the blank. That's who Jesus is to me. Thanks. All right, can we, just, can we just give it up one more time for Brian and Andrea? Come on. So good. Um, what I love about their answers is they just got right to it. When we, when we were talking about this question this week, I heard them, companion, treasure. And then for me, um, my brain works a little differently. And I said um, to myself, I was like, Jordan's like, who is Jesus to you? And I said, uh, well, have you ever played the game Spot the Difference? I have a picture on the screen of what that game is. Um, so when I was a kid, um, I would run home from school to get in my mailbox and open up my mailbox to hopefully find one of two magazines. One, Sports Illustrated for Kids, because they always had a cool poster I'd put on my wall. Or two, highlights. You know what I mean? Highlights. And I open up highlights and I would find this game, Spot the Difference. I, I don't know why I love this game so much, but I did. And so when Jordan asked me, who is Jesus to you? My brain went to spot the difference. And you're like, what are you talking about? Okay, we're going to get there. Um, because just recently, I was in my, in my Bible, I was reading in Luke chapter 15, and Jesus tells three stories. And as I'm reading these stories, I'm asking myself, why three stories? Why can't you just get your point across with one story? And so I started looking for the difference. And in that, I'll come to my conclusion and my answer, who is Jesus to me? All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play Ethos Edition, Spot the Difference. Luke chapter 15. I don't have time to read the scriptures. I'm just going to paraphrase our three stories today. And here's, what, here's what's going on. Jesus is talking to Pharisees and sinners. How many of us know there is no difference? Just the Pharisees thought there were, but sermon for another day. And, and they're sitting there listening to Jesus. And he says, story one, there's a hundred sheep. One of his sheep goes away, runs, is lost. Jesus says the good shepherd goes and finds that lost sheep. He searches and searches and searches until he finds it. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and he brings it back. And when he does, he calls his friends and his family and says, come over to my house, we're partying. We're going to throw a party. That's the end of story one. Story two, there's a woman. She has 10 coins. Okay, this woman is broke. She only has 10 coins. She loses a coin. She only has nine. She has no more coins to lose. So she searches her entire house. She flips up tables and furniture to find her lost coin. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls her friends and her neighbors and says, come over to party, but bring your own snacks and beverages because I only got 10 coins. <laughs> and so these two stories, they look the same, don't they? These two stories... There's something lost. And then someone goes and finds what's lost. And then someone brings it home and then calls everyone and throws a party. These, that's the two stories, right? There's a third story. Jesus says, and, and, and by the way, he's intentionally telling these two stories first so that this third story, we're going to start to lean in and assume what's going to happen. 
We can kind of fill in the blank. God, I know what's going to happen in the next story. I've already heard the first two. He says, there's two brothers, two boys. One goes to the dad and says, can I have my inheritance? Sure. I don't know whose father this is, but he said, yeah, take it. He takes it. He spends it all. He ends up broke, feeding pigs. He has no food to eat for himself. He starts to eat with the pigs, bathe with the pigs, live with the pigs. We have a lost brother. The same way the sheep was lost, the same way the coin was lost, we have a lost brother. And so what do we assume happens next? Someone's going to go find this lost brother, right? That's not what Jesus says. Spot the difference. This lost brother, we have a verse on the screen. He, he, he's sitting there in his mess. And he does, he's come to the end of himself. He doesn't know what to do. So he says, I'm just going to go home. I don't need to be a son. My dad's probably mad. He's probably full of rage and vengeance towards what I've done. I spent all of his inheritance, all the money. So I don't need to be a son. I'm just going to go ask to be a servant. And that's what he does. He heads home. On his way home, he's preparing his an apology and his dad sees him in the distance and his dad comes running. And he hugs him and he grabs him. The son not even getting the apology out. Dad throws his sandals on him, his jewelry on him, his robe on him and says, let's party. My lost son is now home. So the stories, like in the games about the difference, that the structure is the same. But the closer you look, the details are different. Now, obviously, the sheep, the coin, and the kids. But there's a big difference. Something's lost. Someone goes and finds it, and there's a party. But this last story, something's lost. Nobody goes and finds it, and there's a party. He comes home on his own. Why the difference? Why the difference, Jesus? Why, why did you teach us? Why did you tell these stories like this? There's another character in our story, the older brother, the second brother. And while everyone's partying, he's outside of the party like this. The father comes out. What's up? What's wrong? He's like, well, I've been good. I've been the good son. I've never spent your money. I've worked hard. I've never had a party thrown for me. You've never put your jewelry on me. You've never, and, and, and Ethos, like, he's got a point, right? We can all sigh with this brother, like, yeah, that's right. Why, did, why didn't he get to be celebrated? We can all agree, right? Until you start to put yourself in this story. I have a younger brother, my brother A.R. Cole, and he drives me nuts, and he has for 23 years. And, and, and I see my friends, Jackson, you have a younger brother. My boy Jay back there, you have three younger brothers. And Jaden, I've been around you long enough to know that they drive you crazy too. <laughs> but Jay, if, if Izzy ran away, I know something about you. You love your brother. You wouldn't just go back to school, back to basketball practice like nothing changed. Mm -mm. You'd do everything you could to find your lost brother. So why didn't this brother go and find his lost brother and bring him back like the other stories. And that's where Jesus wants us to sit at. We're supposed to desire more from this older brother. Why? Because Jesus wanted to tell us that he did what that older brother didn't do. 
He did what the good shepherd did. He did what the woman did. He came from heaven to find God's lost children who have made a mess of their own lives, who have ran from God. And he brings us, he puts us on his shoulders and he brings us home. That's why the story's told because we should want more for the older brother. So for me, Jesus is my true older brother. The one that came and got me when I made a mess in my own life. And that's all of our story. Here's what I love about this question. That's all of our story. He's your older brother too. But for me, this hits differently. And here's why. Because while this kid was in the mud feeding pigs, I kept asking myself, why? Why didn't he go home sooner? Furthermore, why didn't he just, why was he just okay with being a servant? Why didn't he just go home and be a son? My conclusion is this. He didn't know who his father was. The enemy comes into our lives and he distorts our view of who our father is by distorting our view of who our earthly father is. The Bible says in the gospels that God is our father 189 times. The Bible wants you to know that God is like your father. But if you're like me and your understanding of fatherhood isn't great, you may not want that. You might say, I already have a father and it hasn't worked out for me. No thanks. And so maybe for you, your father is not with you. He's not in your life. And maybe because something tragic happened and it's not his fault and it's not your fault, but there's still abandonment and pain there. Maybe for you, your dad did abandon you by choice. Maybe your mom did abandon you by choice and there's pain there. Maybe you wish that your father or mother abandoned you because the pain in the home was far greater than if they just would have gone. Or maybe like me, you're like the prodigal son that said, I'll just work for my father's love. I'll just, I'll be a servant so I can just work for your acceptance. I don't know what parental wounds we have in the building, but I know there's a lot of them in my life and in yours. And so for me, Jesus is the true older brother that did not just save me from my own pit, but he showed me who my father was because the kid thought his father was being filled with rage, but instead he was filled with grace. He thought he was going to be punished, but instead he got a party. He thought his dad was going to be mad at him, but he didn't. He gave him his jewelry and his robe and his sandals and said, let's party because I'm full of patience and gentleness and love and kindness. This is who our father is, but so many of us in the room don't know that because we only know what our father's like. But you need to hear this, that that God our Father is not the reflection of your earthly parent. He's the perfection of your earthly parent. And so for me, Jesus is my true older brother that saved me from my pit, but showed me who my father was. He's grace-filled, he's patient, he's kind, he's merciful, and he loves me to no end. That's who Jesus is for me.